0: Hi, hey, welcome to The Cordial Catholic, a podcast for non Catholics, new Catholics, and those looking to dig deeper into the Catholic faith. I'm K. Albert Little, an evangelical, non denominational convert to Catholicism, and this podcast is born out of one particular idea. As a non denominational evangelical Christian, I didn't know a lot about the roots of my Christian faith. I had the Bible and a picture of the church that came from the New Testament, but what about the intervening 2,000 years between then and now? It was when I began to look into the history of the Christian church that I inevitably encountered Catholicism. And when I encountered Catholicism and began to read Catholic authors and listen to Catholic speakers, I realized that what I knew about the Catholic faith was completely wrong, It was based largely on misinformation, on misunderstandings, on misinterpretations. Well, this podcast serves to fill in that gap. The gap between what you think Catholics believe and what we actually do. I have real Catholic conversations with influential Catholic thinkers from the heart of the Catholic Church. No misinformation here. And this episode is simply fantastic. You know, you think you've been Christian for most of your life and read your way into the Catholic Church by digging deeply into history and philosophy and theology, and then you read a book like this one, the one written by my guest this week, and you suddenly realize, suddenly humbly realize, how little you know about fundamental aspects of our faith. That book is God, what every Catholic should know. And the guest this week is Dr. Elizabeth Klein from the Augustine Institute. Her book, another in the fantastic series from the Augustine Institute, is all about God. How we understand God, the nature of the Trinity, the divinity and humanity of Christ, and what the Catholic Church says about it all. And you realize, I realize, through reading this book and through our conversation here, That how we understand God at a fundamental level absolutely affects everything about our Catholic faith life. It's a fantastic conversation. This podcast is brought to you in part by my generous patrons at patreon.com slash cordial catholic. Guys, this isn't my full-time job, not even my part-time job, and every dollar helps to keep this podcast running to help with the mission of evangelization, which underpins this whole thing and allows me to spend even more time doing it all. Please do pray for me. I'm praying for you and pray for our listeners as well. But if you feel called to give financially, even one or two dollars a month goes a long way. As a thank you, all patrons get access to a special behind-the-scenes podcast as well as early access to certain episodes and, coming soon, bonus content as well. Patrons that can give $5 or more a month are also automatically entered into contests for free books. Thanks for your support, guys. Thanks for your prayers, your fasting as well. The link is patreon.com slash cordialcatholic. And now, without any further ado, here's my fantastic interview With Dr. Elizabeth Klein. Please listen and enjoy. Hi, friends, and welcome back to The Cordial Catholic. My guest today is Dr. Elizabeth Klein, and she's a Canadian. She has a B.A. and an M.A. in Religious Studies from McMaster University, a Ph.D. from Notre Dame, and is an assistant professor of theology at the Augustine Institute in Denver, Colorado. She is the author of God, What Every Catholic Should Know, part of the incredible What Every Catholic Should Know series, a co-production of Ignatius Press and the Augustine Institute. And Dr. Klein, I am so pleased to have you on the program today, least of all because if I weren't talking to you, I'd have to go outside and shovel the absolute deluge of snow that's falling here outside of our home studio. (laughs) For many, many reasons, thank you for being here today, and welcome to the show.
1: Thanks. Thanks for having me. It's uh, nice to be contacted out of the blue by a fellow Canadian and Catholic and theology lover. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well,
0: very happy to have you. And, you know, I got to say right away that this is just such a fantastic series. We had Dr. Michael Barber on, a colleague of yours at the Augustine Institute, to talk about his entry into this series on salvation. And, you know, when I picked up your book on God, it didn't look very long, and I got the ebook version and and I thought, you know what what I wondered what i uh somebody who's been a Christian a Catholic for a large part of my life, I really wondered what I could possibly learn about God. I thought, you know surely I know everything, but I'm sure this is a fantastic presentation, and um and, you know i'll I'll read it and dig into it anyway, but I was surprised and of course humbled as I should have been approaching a book like that, uh, just at how much I learned. About God. This is just such a fantastic presentation uh, that you've put together here on the fundamentals of God, but not even fundamentals. I mean, you honestly explain this topic in such, so succinctly in such great detail, in such a, a, a readable and accessible version. Um, I think it's a fantastic accomplishment. So so first of all, kudos uh, to a fellow Canadian for such a great job on, on boiling down this amazing, enormous topic of God into such a succinct, readable text. Way to go.
1: <laughs> the joke I keep telling is that I talk too fast even when I'm writing, so it's uh, something common to Canadians, I suppose. Yeah, and my pitch for buying the book is I'm like, but you know, it's only like 135 pages. It's shorter than salvation is shorter than literature everything yeah i mean it was helpful it was such a big topic obviously to be asked to contribute to the series and then the person who's asking me said oh we want you to write on god i was like oh great that's you know it's like well you know there's everything a catholic could know about god but then there's everything a catholic really should know about god uh and so that that kind of helped me figure out um sort of the points i really wanted to hit
0: Yeah, well, you've done a fantastic job, truly. I'm not just saying that because you're you're a Canadian (laughs) and I'm I'm trying to be biased. I'm not at all. It's just such a fantastic presentation. And I wonder if we can start at the beginning here, because um, what's unique, I think, in our particular day and age uh, is that the question of God, even the idea, the thought that God exists is under serious uh, challenge. And maybe more often than not, uh, it, it isn't even considered sometimes in our day and age. And this is unique in history, I think. And so I wonder, starting there, from a place where so many people are maybe too busy or distracted or uninterested in even asking the question, is there a God, what's one way that you would like to start, typically, to provide uh, a good reasons for believing that God does exist, even to begin with?
1: So in the book, I mean, I'm sure many of your listeners are familiar with Aquinas' Five Proofs of the Existence of God, or they've heard of it before. And that can kind of sound intimidating, uh, this idea of these proofs from the opening of the Summa, that they're really complicated. But what I try to show in the book, I just picked two of the proofs that actually they're very simple and they're very elegant, and they kind of just affirm you for being sane, you know, so I think that, that that step first is showing people that belief in God is actually a very sane thing to do. It's a very, they're very sane questions to ask. If we if we look in the world and see everything in the world has a cause, it's actually very sane to ask. Well, then the world itself must also have a cause. The universe itself must also have a cause. So what is that cause? Um, that's like a very sane thing to do. Or if we see, when we look around... Um, that everything sort of receives its life from other people, right? we receive our lives from our parents, where we receive our food from farmers, and everything in life seems to be sort of interdependent well, then where does that lead us from? Where do we get life to begin with? And so I think the Aquinas' proofs are really just going in that direction. They don't go all the way to proving the triune Christian God, but they really affirm the seeker in looking for those answers to big questions. And so one of the proofs I do is the proof from causality, which is, I've already mentioned, is just sort of A causes B, causes C, causes D. We see that in the whole world. We see that happening all the time. And so At some point, you know, we have to, uh, the buck has to stop somewhere. There has to be a first cause. This is how Aquinas thinks anyway. There has to be a cause that's unlike all other causes, a cause which itself is uncaused. And that's what we call God. And that's actually a very sane way to look at things. I think sometimes, especially in... Uh, scientific discourse you know there's this idea that the universe kind of caused itself or like popped out of non-existence you can find this in Stephen Hawking or Lawrence Krauss Um, but that's actually fairly illogical something can't cause itself not even God really is said to be cause himself right because you have to exist before you can cause anything else Uh, and so even if we can track things through science you know where matter came from um, where energy came from and all these things we still don't Know where the laws of the universe came from, right? And so there's this kind of never a uh, satisfactory answer from with, within creation, so to speak. We have to think about something that's beyond that. Um, yeah. And so I think Frank Sheet has a great analogy for this. He said it's actually kind of an insanity to see a coat hanging on the wall and not ask how, why it's hanging there. You know, to just say, well, it doesn't really matter is sort of an insanity. So I kind of try to show, that's the first thing I try to show. It's actually kind of affirms people looking for God. It's actually a very logical thing to do, a very sane thing to do. Um, But then the other thing I talk about is it's also a very intuitive thing to do. So it's sane, but it's also intuitive. Um, And you mentioned that, you know, now people kind of reject God out of hand, but I actually think that or at least studies show, that atheists are kind of like a vocal minority. And when most people, you know, most people are not church-going, you know, really faithful religious people, but most people do not completely reject the idea of any God or any transcendence. I think even the latest Pew study is something like 90% of Americans say that they believe in God still. Um, you know, what they mean by that, of course, is is various. But what it shows is that there's kind of this innate human desire for something beyond the world. And we can see throughout the history of the whole world, religious expression is very basic uh, to humankind. And, you know, people are really, had that part of them that's still searching, even if we deaden it with, you know, lots of screen time and Netflix or whatever. If we spend time by ourselves, we still feel that draw. So those are the two kind of approaches I take, that it's logical and we can see that in the history of philosophy, but also that it's very sort of intuitive.
0: Well, I think those are just, Fantastic approaches. I, I love the word that you used, uh, "sane." It's it's a sane thing to uh, to to ask what what caused these things. And I love anytime somebody quotes from from Frank Sheed. So, <laughs> so bonus points for that as well. But it's it's true. You know, it, it, absolutely fundamental. And I've had a number of uh, of philosophers, even some scientists, on this program so far, uh, back in the archives, who've talked about this mm-hmm. idea that. Uh, we, we sometimes uh without thinking about it assume that science can explain all of these things but when we began to use our reason to try and reason that link that you know that that uh that link of of causes back to the beginning even using a scientific method we have to reach somewhere that has to point outside of of science mm-hmm. i think sometimes people just take for granted that oh well i'm sure science has explained away god or explained away these things but uh, you know actually doing, doing the science leads to a different conclusion, and then, on the other hand, you talk about this this innate desire we have for God, and it just requires slowing down and, and thinking about that and then I guess our job as 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 Catholic Christians is to present uh, well here 's the answer to this thing that when you slow down you 're actually searching for.
1: Right. And I mean, obviously, we all want to be brilliant theologians, be able to, you know, (laughs) beat up our opponents with our learning and teach them the five proofs of the in God. But and that's very important. It's very important to be able to express that people are looking for something that satisfies their intellect. Obviously, I believe in that. But I think on a day by day basis, this being a witness to that intuition to live your life as if it's true that there's something beyond the material world. I think that's really the starting point for most people. Oh, that's a fantastic way of putting
0: it. As we begin to move into one of the earliest revelations of of God that comes from the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament, you have the story of creation and the Garden of Eden and Adam and Eve. But then we get to a very fascinating story a bit later on in the Old Testament, uh, which is the story of Moses and the burning bush. And here God reveals something of himself to Moses, kind of for the first time. And it really serves to help us better understand who God is. So I wonder if you could unpack for us what God is recorded as having told Moses from the burning bush and how this informs our thinking about God.
1: Yeah, I really, I love this passage, um, so the story of the burning bush. So obviously God is revealed throughout the Old Testament, but this this passage has really been taken as one of the most significant passages revealing the nature of God. And so that's, I spend a chapter talking about this passage. So for those who might not fully remember all the details of the story, you know, Moses is up in the land of Midian tending his sheep and he sees a bush burning, but uh, but it isn't burned up and he turns aside to see uh, and that in and of itself i just love the setup of that story it's almost it's almost comical in that like god puts out like a billboard ad in the middle of nowhere you know and oh, the first person to turn aside is going to get stuck into his mission of course god knows everything he knows moses is going to be the one but the but the setup there it's it sort of um sort of reminds us I think that God is always there right the brilliance of God is always there to be experienced if we turn aside so I love that setup so he turns aside right and then he hears the voice in the bush saying you know take off your shoes for you are on holy ground he introduces himself I am the God of Abraham Isaac and Jacob and tells Moses you know you're gonna go and save your people in Egypt and Moses doesn't like that idea so much sounds like (laughs) a lot like a lot of hard work and so he kind of pushes back and, and asks for God's name. You know, if I go to Egypt and the people will say, well, who are you? And to, to be freeing us and who sent you? You know, so he says, what will I say? And that's when God responds with his name. I am who I am. And so this and he says, this is my name throughout all generations. And so this name of God really becomes a chief point of contemplation about who god is and of course that name i am right makes us think um in philosophical terms sort of immediately god is um existence itself you might say god is the grounds of all being god is completely transcendent god is not just one thing in the universe so the what's revealed in the bible i try to show this in, in the book really satisfies and, and is compatible with our reason i mean of course our reason can't get all the way to the transcendent god and yet what God reveals can be received by us and understood. So we, we hear "I am," and we think, "Yes, that's fitting for the uncaused cause, the unmoved mover, this transcendent, this transcendent principle." Um, so you can reflect on it in all those ways. But what I also try to show is that that name is not just sort of God trumpeting down His magnificence from heaven, because the con- it's really in the context of the story that the name is revealed and. A lot of names in the Old Testament, as you may know, they're kind of like their etymologies have to do with the story they're found in. So, you know, Isaac's name means laughter because Sarah laughs, you know, when he's when he's born. These kinds of things that Esau means hairy. So a lot of their names are related to to the story that they're found in. And it's actually the same with God's name. Because when Moses asks God, who will be with me in Egypt, that's what God answers with, I am. Right, So it's almost like a joke on Moses. Moses is saying, well, who's going to be there? He's like, I am. You know, existence, I am the one who's everywhere all the time. And so the name sort of really comforts us about God's presence in our lives, as well as His transcendent and magnificent nature. So it's really a wonderful source of reflection, or a, a good starting point for reflecting on the nature of God. Yeah, I just,
0: I, I just love how you un, unpack that in the book, especially this idea that uh, you know, <laughs> the the answer "I am" it just encompasses everything of what God is—transcendent, is, is immanent, all these different. Outside of time, He is just. He's just there. And I love especially, I, I was trying to explain this to my uh, RCAA class. I was teaching actually on, on God the Father last week, so your book was just perfectly timed. And I was trying to explain this idea of the imminence of God, the idea that I am. Uh, and again, I actually drew on Frank Sheed, who I obviously love, the idea that God is everywhere. He's, he's just, the, the closeness of God can best be explained as maybe... Uh, us, uh, I think Frank Sheed uses the idea of swimming in an ocean, and God is the ocean we're swimming in, because the imminence of God, that I am, is just so close around us. It almost can't be uh,
1: described, right? And it's almost—it's even harder to describe, even than almost what you're saying, because when we think about an ocean that we swim in, it's almost like God is present as like a force or substance or as the air we breathe. But really, God isn't contained by the material world at all. He's present to everything, sustaining it in existence, and is present to everything because he knows everything, and is present to everything because he's he's all-powerful. He's not divided up into parts. And so I have that quote from Augustine. I'm, I'm a lover of Augustine. Um, Augustine is really reflecting on this question, in the opening of the Confessions, if you've ever read it. He's really struggling to understand how God can be everywhere at the same time. And yet above all things, and he has that great little phrase, Oh Lord, you are everywhere whole. Um, and I just love that image everywhere whole. I really, really have to work on that with the mind because it's not something that is easily, you know, visualized by us.
0: Yeah, and I I do love that. I hadn't come across that quote before. I, I haven't read. I've read bits of Confessions. I had I, I have to <laughs> I have to confess. I have not read the whole thing from <laughs> start to beginning or start to end. Um, but when I came across that idea in in your book on God, that quote from uh, Augustine, I, 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 I've talked to my my class about this as well. The the candidates who are looking at becoming Catholic that I met with last week and. This idea of the imminence, the closeness of God that you've described, you've you've brought in Augustine to help explain this. And I, this helps m- me, I think, personally, and I think it helps those that that think of it this way, to think of even like the idea of prayer. Right? If God is that close to us, knows everything, is just so imminent, so so close to us, and we, we can't even understand or, or describe, you know, I can, just, I, can, I can be desperate for God's help or grace or answer to a prayer, and, you know, I, I barely have to utter or, or breathe that prayer or think that prayer, and God is already wrapping himself around me in, in that prayer and responding in a sense that, in a closeness that we can't even understand, Right.
1: And that's, I mean, well, we know, well, maybe we're forecasting the doctrine of the Trinity, but I, t- I talk a little bit about how this is even heightened by our understanding of the Trinity, because when we think about the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, right, that we're given at our baptism, you know, this is telling us, how close God is to us when we're praying. It's not this we're praying to God. I mean, we are praying to God, but we're praying through the power of God, Jesus Christ. And we're praying really with God because the Holy Spirit dwelling within us enables us to be able to say those prayers and accompanies us right, right as close as we could possibly be with ourselves. Um, and so this helps us to understand what prayer is, which is a conversation with God, right? Coming to know God better, but also coming to know yourself better too, right? Augustine has this wonderful little phrase about prayer where he says, in prayer, uh, we are not, sorry, in prayer, God is not instructed, but we are constructed, meaning that we are built up through prayer, you know? And sometimes we think about prayer as being like you know, giving God some tips on how to run the universe, or presenting God a wish list. Which is, I mean, God wants us to ask for those things, but why? Uh, so that we can come to know ourselves in Him by Him actually answering our prayers, or making us wait, or answering our prayer in a way we wouldn't expect, right? And and that's the way that we come to know Him and become more like Him.
0: Yeah, that's just brilliant. So let's move into the New Testament then, because. The revelation of who God is that Jesus provides helps us to understand so much more about the nature of God. But of course, it also brings up all kinds of new questions. And I want to move on to Jesus in a little bit, but I wonder first if we can talk about what you already brought up, the idea of the Trinity. And perhaps it begins by asking two questions. Um, First, who God is, and then what God is. And I wonder if we can understand the answers to these questions, who God is and, and what God is and how they are different and what that helps us to understand about God.
1: Yeah. So this is also um, a conversation that you can find in Frank Sheed. Uh, for those of you who haven't read Frank Sheed, I actually assigned for my, my course on the creed, I assigned his book, Theology and Sanity. And so he goes more into depth, some of the things that I touch on in the book. If you you know like the book, you want to go deeper, you can you could try picking up that one as well. Uh, but he he does this division of what and who, I think I think is very helpful. I mean, you can ask the question what and who of a of a person too, right? If you see someone walking down the hall, you could say, What is that? Which would be a little rude, but the answer would be, right, a human being. What a human being. But if you want to answer the question who, right, the answer would be Sally or Mark or Ben or whatever. Right. So and those, so what? Those two questions are pointing at the what is asking. What is the what is the nature of the thing? You know, the answer human being tells you uh, what that person is capable of doing, how they present themselves in the world. Right? That's kind of nature. The nature of God is the what? What is God? Is his divine nature? But then in the doctrine of the Trinity, we get into this question of well, who is God? And all of a sudden, we have three answers to that question. He's Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. All of a sudden, there, there are these different names. Um, and so what I try to show in the book is um, how we distinguish those two things in the tradition. Um, but then also, and more importantly, why that actually matters and why it matters to sort of our everyday lives as Catholics. I think a lot of Catholics know the doctrine of the Trinity is important, but they don't necessarily know how to articulate it or why it's very important. Um, so I do spend a lot of time on the doctrine of the Trinity.
0: So how, I wonder, would you unpack this? Because it is a, a, a bulk of your book, the idea of the Trinity, because it is what the Catholic Church calls the central mystery of our faith, I think, right? Mm-hmm. So what's yeah. one way you can uh, explain, uh, you know, I'm not going to say easy, because there's no easy way, but how we understand what God is and how that kind of informs our, our, our faith. In, in God?
1: What is one okay. way we well, can approach that? I've actually also taught for two years now. I've helped teach religious ed at um, our local parish. So you have to have, you know, the book link version, and then you have to have the 30-second version of the Trinity for religious ed class, so the 13-year-old girls aren't only going to listen for 30 seconds. So um, so I'll give you something in between the book version and the 30-second version. So the, 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 the importance of distinguishing the what and the who at a very basic level is that we only want to say there's one God, right? There's only one what and that's sort of obvious if you think about the nature of god there can only be one such thing if you want to even say the word thing uh that, that is infinite eternal all-knowing all-powerful right god can't be competing with other gods are all those words are not true of him so there's only one what there's only one god so then how what difference does it make that there are three who's or how is that even possible and so what i show in the book is that the fathers really um, take this from the scriptures where they see in the New Testament that Jesus claims that he's God, I and mean, he says, I and the Father are one, he behaves like God, he uses that name of God, I am, for himself, so I talk about that in the book, but then also he somehow talks about the Father as if the Father is not the same person as him, and so they they really um, go through this, and what they determine is that, therefore, what we have are is one nature of God, one God, in three persons. And the sort of reason why that's important is what's revealed in Christ, what's revealed in the New Testament, is that God in himself is an eternal exchange of love. right? So it isn't this monad up in the sky somewhere beaming down love upon us. It's that God actually is the love that he gives. And so what we're invited into, and we're invited into the life of God, is this Trinitarian life of love. Um and so I go through the the very classic uh, Augustinian image for the Trinity, which is that that of love. So usually, if I have to give the thirty second version to high school, I just do the love image image. Um. So Augustine uh, to help explain this doctrine talks about the image of of love in and of itself. So not so much three people in love, but love in and of itself. He says, if you think about love, there you see three already because the word love, like you can't love in the abstract, right? If I say I love, like. I love what, right? I love lamp. I love, you know, has to has to be an object. So right away, you can see as soon as there's love, there's three, right? There's the lover, the one who's doing the loving. There's the object, the beloved, the one who is loved. And then there's love itself, the love that flows between them. So that's his analogy for understanding the Trinity: that there's the Father, the Lover, uh, the Son to be loved, and the Holy Spirit is the love that shared between them. And in that way, we can we can see something even more powerful about about the love of God. Because in the Old Testament, we obviously know God is steadfast in love, but in the New Testament, what we what we come to see is that God in Himself is love. God is love, as it says in First John. I like
0: too how you spend some some time kind of uh, putting down some of these heresies. Uh, you know, some of these frequent. Uh, ways we describe the Trinity as, as water or, or ice and, and liquid vapor. And you, I, I, I kind of laugh when you take down some of these things and say, nope, that's, that's modalism. Like these are, we can't call God these different things because these aren't accurate. It, it's, it's, it's refreshing to, uh, to then also be provided with some, some better language to describe God that you give us in the book.
1: Yeah, I have a chapter where I kind of like do a takedown of the analogies. My my like, least favorite analogy, which was the first one I ever heard in high school, was the egg analogy. Like God is an egg white and a yolk in a shell. I'm like, no, but that's three not only is that three different what's, right? Three different substances. But it's also like three parts added up to make one God. It's totally not the Trinity. Um, but I hope that that chapter is helpful, not only in just saying like, oh, the analogies you were using are bad suckers. Like, that's not what I've tried to necessarily do, but show how analogies can be helpful. And so even all analogies are imperfect, right? But um, if, we, if we're if we able to identify what's imperfect about those analogies, then hopefully that can help people see what kind of mystery we're dealing with, right? Okay, so here's an analogy, here are the ways that that analogy can help, but here are the ways that that analogy falls short. And then in that way, kind of push us closer and closer to understanding the actual mystery of the Trinity, which can only sort of in the end be said, uh, and, and you know, we're only ever going to fully understand it when we see God face to face.
0: Yeah, and I, I think you did a fantastic job of underscoring that idea as well, that uh, here's how this describes God, but here's how this falls short, and here's some ways we should avoid. And and again and again, what you come back to in, in this book, r- rightly so, is the idea that this is all stuff we can we can know so poorly, right? We can see so darkly right now mm-hmm. w- before we actually see God face-to-face, because it's just so, such a huge, uh, the, the hugest <laughs> topic, right?
1: Yeah, it's something I try to hit hard in the book, I don't know if I do it successfully, is to actually Really, like encourage people on the face of that mystery because I think it's easy you know if you ever hear the doctrine of the Trinity preached it's like once a year on Trinity Sunday and it's something like it's a mystery okay go home now you know it's not really it's not really an invitation so and the book I really try to make mystery an invitation knowing that something is transcendent the most magnificent thing of all time is perfect Right, that's to be something we want to spend our whole lives trying to know better and better. So I use the analogy of marriage, right? You know, when you marry another person, they're they're in a sense a mystery. I mean, you're never going to know everything about them after being married for twenty years. You'd be like, I never knew you didn't like pork chops, you know? Uh, But you wouldn't take that mysteriousness as license to say, you know, what I don't really want to talk to you because I'm never really going to get to know you, and you know, you're just a mystery, and let's just like, you know, the less I the less I know, the better. (laughs) I mean, that would be a crazy, foolish way to undertake a marriage. It would be, you know, a bad bad news probably for your marriage. And so similarly with God, I I hope that presenting this idea of mystery draws people in rather than pushes them away. I've got to work on my marriage. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, spend some time, you know, talking. Uh, but it, I mean, there is sort of, it's sort of more, perhaps more poignant <laughs> the more you think about it because... I do think one of the reasons maybe that we aren't don't have as healthy marriages as we should is that we don't think about it this way. We don't think about it as a lifelong process of coming to know that person better and better. And so one day we wake up and are like, you're not the person I married. Well, you know, of course they're not. You haven't, <laughs> you haven't spent time. You haven't, you know, and all of those things. <laughs> well,
0: I think the analogy works so well, too, because uh, through the course of salvation history, into the Old Testament and into the New Testament and the ways that God's revealed himself, and this is the same with how we know each other in a marriage, there are times you could, you can know a person, we can know God a certain way, but until he actually reveals or or says something to us, like me telling my spouse, I don't like pork chops, (laughs) you know, we, there's certain things we can't know unless we dig deeper into that mystery and, and Mm -hmm. let God reveal himself to us as he has through, through the church and and the scriptures in actual tangible ways. But then even just discovering different things about God and ourselves through through prayer and through deepening that relationship we we can't grow deeper i mean honestly your your book has really uh, and i mean this truly has really reenthusi <laughs> that's not a word <laughs> you know reenthused my 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 love for the idea of digging deeper into who God is as an aspect of of my faith, and there's there's so much in there to dig deeper into, and that's just one small uh, facet of my of my Catholic faith to dig deeper into. But here I am, having read this this short, succinct book, just dying to to go deeper now into that to deepen my love my my interest in this mystery
1: of God. That's a lot. that's great. That's nice to hear. Thank you. Um, I, I do think that some. I mean, sometimes. Um, And I think this is partially – I don't know if this is like a modernity thing where religion has been kind of pit against the intellectual life in a way that now religious people can be intimidated by Um, even books or learning because they think that those things might be like out to get them or something. But even on a very basic level, I mean something – as simple as the rosary, which is a very fundamental part of the spirituality of many Catholics. I mean, your ability to pray the rosary is going to be so much deeper. You know, if you spend the time with the scriptures understanding the mysteries, if you spend time understanding the person of Jesus Christ, if you under- spend time understanding Mary's response to God and these these kinds of things. that It's really obvious when you think about it, but I do think a lot of people have a gut reaction sort of against mystery and against uh, encountering that mystery intellectually especially.
0: Yeah, it's really fascinating. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm an evangelical, non-denominational convert to Catholicism, and and the the idea of mystery was really nowhere in my in my spiritual or religious vocabulary before becoming Catholic. It, there there was an idea of well, here's and it would have been these really paltry examples of explaining the Trinity, and and of course there's there are there are evangelical theologians who dig dig deeper into this, but the the kind of orbit I was in at least for the majority of my evangelical non-denominational experience, uh, you can can go on in that tradition uh, without really embracing the idea—I mean, I I could at least—of a mystery and of being comfortable um, existing in this tension of, of there being mystery in my faith. But as a Catholic, this is central to how I think we understand how the church presents faith to us. I mean, it calls the Trinity the central mystery of our faith, and it's okay doing that. We're, you know, we're encouraged to live in the, that mysterious kind of area of our faith.
1: Yeah, it's like, it's sort of a double-edged sword, I suppose. I'm also an evangelical convert, and the first time I really even, I mean, obviously I'd heard the egg thing, but the first time that I had really encountered these central doctrines of the faith, the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of the Incarnation, and even the doctrine of the resurrection of the body, was the first time I ever took a theology course, which is a course on Thomas Aquinas at McMaster. Um, And I don't even know, I signed up for the course. It was called Christianity in the Middle Ages. And I thought I was going to be like knights and monks, you know, like, I I don't know. It was like a very deceptive title. And it was basically a whole course on Thomas Aquinas. Um, But all of a sudden, I experienced both what you're describing in that all of these mysteries being presented, like, wow, this seems really important to understand the incarnation. It seems really important to understand the Trinity. Why did no one ever bother telling me about these things uh, on the one hand? And on the other hand, a sort of confidence... To, to go forward knowing that you have the tradition behind you and all of these people who have read the scriptures so deeply and have really read them. I mean, someone like Thomas Aquinas, I mean, he's just so synthetic, so coherent. He's thought everything through and it doesn't excuse you from thinking them through at all, but it gives you this confidence that you have these these ancient friends you know, that are going to accompany you um, and that the whole world isn't going to fall down on your own interpretation of Scripture. I found that that dual experience of both experiencing the mystery and experiencing the richness of the tradition, um, that's really kind of what propelled me towards the Catholic Church. <laughs> Amen. You know, this is a, a really common theme on, on this podcast, certainly when I speak to,
0: <laughs> to converts. I, can, I can't even think, I can't even remember anymore who, who I heard said what but uh, somebody i recently spoke to you know brought up the idea i think it may have been mike aquilina talking about the early church and how we how we study church history from mm-hmm. from the fathers said so something to the effect of in the in the same vein that yeah you know as catholics we we study the scriptures and study topics of God and the church and these enormous mysteries uh, with all of our ancestors, with that tradition behind us. And like you say, that certainly for me was an enormous draw in, into the church. That suddenly I'm not having to read different Protestant, often uh, theologians who working out these difficult things. I, I, when I, when I began to understand what the Catholic Church taught, here it was open to this enormous tradition that had thought about this for 2,000 years that included our, our ancestors, so to speak, Aquinas and Augustine and and all these phenomenal thinkers, which, like you say, I love that expression. It gives us the confidence to dig deeper into this, knowing that, you know, we're not just doing it on our own. And like you said, I felt exactly the same way. It's not going to fall apart if I, you know, that the egg falls apart if I crack it, because it's a poor analogy, yeah. but, you know.
1: Yeah, it's totally true. I mean, this at least I had it this idea in my mind, and I'm sure this isn't true of all evangelicals, but because of Sola Scriptura, that I had to be the one to figure everything out. And in high school, I did like the most evangelical thing possible, which is Bible quizzing. I was like memorizing big portions of the Bible, and then, you know, you answer questions on it and get prizes and whatever. Um, and so I'm memorizing all this scripture and there's a lot of scripture that's really hard. It doesn't really make that much sense. And unless the Bible study leader has a good answer for you, you sort of left hanging and thinking that there's like all these Bible passages that just don't really have a good explanation. And then all of a sudden encountering the tradition and realizing like, oh no, like it actually all makes sense. <laughs> like people have actually read this whole thing and they read it together and there's a, a whole sort of Christian outlook that results from a holistic reading of the scriptures. Um, I mean, it's just, it's just really amazing. So, I mean, I'm like a really boring convert. It's basically just like I read a bunch of books and eventually became Catholic. But if people ask me to point to some specific thing, I think it would be that as a Protestant coming to realize that the Bible is best read in the context of the tradition and makes sense in the context of the tradition. I mean, it's liberating. That's really the only way I can use to describe it.
0: Yeah, <laughs> I think amen 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 this is this is the feeling that that i have been in many conferences i've I've talked to have been trying to put put a pin on this the liberation you feel i've i've kind of um likened it to suddenly being able to um relax into the arms of a tradition that has everything figured out not that i don't need to do work on my own to figure these things out but to realize that wait a minute. I'm part of a tradition that's been working these things out for 2,000 years, and I don't have to suffer on my on my own or in my small group of friends or in this Wednesday night Bible study at, at church to try and figure this out. I can draw on a tradition. I can, in a sense, relax into this tradition that, that's been doing this for 2,000 years. And in fact, that, that we believe Christ said would be able to do it with some authority, right?
1: Yeah, I think I think like I had initial uh, my best friend in college was Catholic, and she would always be trying to get me to read the catechism. And I was very resistant to it, because I thought the catechism was like the answer book, you know, and so I was allergic to it, like, oh, I'm just gonna look it up and find the answer. And then that's it. I don't have to think anymore. Um, But anyone who's read the catechism will know that it is not at all, you know, the end point, right? It's really giving you the confidence and the structure to do theology. It's really a beginning point. And so that and that's really with any theology book. So my book being only 130 pages about God, really what I hope hope it does is give people that same kind of foundation and grounding in the tradition and that confidence to go forward and to go deeper in, in many, many of the different topics.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Don't mm-hmm. let yourself short. I think it's 135 pages. <laughs>
1: Oh, so is it? Okay, 135, <laughs> including the title page. and the yeah, 131 in my volume here.
0: Oh, that's brilliant. Okay, so <laughs> the idea of God becoming man, taking on flesh in, in Jesus Christ, this I think would have been and, and was an absolute scandal, I would think, for the Jewish people at the time. I, I wonder if we can, getting back on track a little bit, I, I detoured us there. What can we say about the radical idea of God becoming a man, and how does this expand our understanding of God?
1: Right, so I think that there's can be a certain sort of commonplace, you know, looking at the crucifix um, and and not realizing that, of course, that the cross is such a scandal, Right. Paul calls it a scandal, and why? Because not only do we believe that the transcendent, infinite God, you know, the God that cannot change, the God that's outside of time— somehow not only just entered time, but became a human person, a human being, and and died, right? God doesn't die. God isn't born. God doesn't change. And so this really is a very challenging uh, prospect, this idea that Christ claims that he's God. How can he be both God and man is, is, is a scandal and um, really pushes us to understand further, really, the, those topics we've talked about, like God's imminence of God's present to all things and in all things, then in a sense, what's more natural to God than to be able to completely enter the creation that he himself created? And so Thomas Aquinas says that the incarnation is the greatest sign of God's power, which is really counterintuitive, right? Because being a human being is like not very powerful and not doesn't seem like a very good idea for God, uh, being being that he has everything that he needs. Uh, But what he means by that is that God is so powerful that God can achieve what achieve his ends in the most perfect way that he desires, right? So God isn't bound, so to speak, by his own transcendence. God isn't bound by, by anything at all.
0: Yeah, that's a fantastic <laughs> way of, of looking at it, that in his power, I mean, in his power, he can become this tiny, helpless infant. That's such an interesting juxtaposition.
1: Right, yeah, and you have that, you have that recurring in the Fathers that the, cro- the cross is a sign of power, You know, I mean, you're like, how is the cross a sign of power? The cross seems like a sign of being punished for a crime you didn't do by people who you should really be able to zap because you're God. How is it a sign of power to have people say, if you're the son of God, come down from the cross? Because if I was a son of God, I would have come down and zapped everybody. But that's like, that's the point, right? Is that we in our fallen state, we have actually a very false understanding of what power is. We think power is, you know, getting other people to do what we want by force, um, but that's but God is so powerful that God can actually work what he wants without violating the order of creation and without violating the free will that he gave to us right that's that's a kind of power that that we can't even understand
0: yeah and I and I love that your book just serves as, as a as a launching point for all of these such fascinating questions I love that and you know okay so something that has I think honestly plagued even the church from the beginning. Is this idea of how God could become man, and and what that means for God and man to to exist in in one one you know thing of Jesus? If I can say thing, that doesn't sound right, but I mean, you know, I, I recently read a, a fantastic academic text by uh, uh, Doctor Eleanor Stump on suffering, and she brought up an idea that kind of kind of shook me to the, to the core a little bit because she suggests that, um, of course, not without some controversy. Uh, That when Jesus comes to heal, to to raise Lazarus from the dead, um, he is surprised at how upset Mary and Martha are that they had to wait so long for him to come after they asked him to come raise his friend Lazarus from the dead. And it struck me as such an interesting idea that Jesus could could be surprised or could have perhaps, as Dr. Stump suggests, made a mistake in waiting so long. Um, I wouldn't have thought, you know, I, I hadn't really reflected on that idea that he was would be capable of something like that. Now, I don't expect you to respond to to Dr. Stump's idea necessarily, but it got me thinking of the idea of how we understand the nature of God, uh, Jesus, I should say, the God-man, and and these two natures. Something that the Church, I think, has struggled to understand for, I mean, this has been the subject of a number of heresies, of course, down through the ages, but um, how do we understand, uh, maybe a very basic level, Jesus having two natures, God and man,
1: right. If we go back to my little use of the words "what" and "who," right. In Jesus Christ, there's only one "who." There's only one Jesus. So, but there are two "whats." Right. He is fully God and fully man. So he has the nature of God and has the nature of man. He can do what God does. And he can also do what man does. So, in a, in a sense, this this is a this is a tricky question. I always I always uh, have the caveat that like nobody. Knows the inner psychology of Jesus. Nobody has the experience of being having two natures. Right? We only have the experience of having one nature, or a human being. Um, and we're a human person. <laughs> like we have a human nature and we're a human person who expresses that. We don't know what it's like. I mean, you can think of analogies for maybe understanding what it's like. One that I think is sort of funny. It's a little pickle, whatever, but I often use it in class. I put up a picture of like Bob Dylan playing the harmonica and the guitar at the same time. It's like, what does it sound like to play one song on two different instruments at the same time throughout your whole life? Um right, because Jesus is completely unified in action, you know, he doesn't appear schizophrenic, uh, so he's only kind of acting in one way, and yet somehow, right, he's acting fully as God and fully as man, and the question that you've pointed to, which is Jesus's knowledge, is really where the rubber meets the road on this, you know, we can, so we can look at events in Jesus's life and see, oh, well, he's hungry and eats, he's a human being, but he raises people from the dead, he's God, like, we can, we can do that, but then when it comes down to, okay, well, does baby Jesus know that he's God, you know, when Jesus feels emotion, what is that prompted by? Is it prompted by a lack of knowledge? Um, this is a difficult question, and it's been parsed out in, in different ways by different people. Uh, I can tell you what Thomas Aquinas says, uh, which is that Jesus doesn't lack any sort of theoretical knowledge. You might say he only lacks the knowledge that comes by experience. Um, and so how did, what does that look like? The analogy or the one question I often get as a teacher is like, well, did Jesus know Chinese? <laughs> Because Chinese hasn't even been invented yet, or proto Chinese, or you know what I mean, like. uh, And so the answer I get, which is probably too cute and doesn't actually make any sense, is um, Jesus knows Chinese, but he can't speak it. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, like. But how does that actually play out when Jesus is said to grow in wisdom and stature and grow in experiential knowledge? I don't know if I'd be comfortable saying that he's surprised by Mary and Martha, at least in an intellectual sense. But he could potentially have been. surprised in the kind of like a kind of emotional sense. Right. And, and, and seeing, and seeing that moment, right. He responds as a human being. Like I think about, Oh, like here's a something I just thought of in this case. So when my husband was going to propose to me, I kind of knew, right. Like I knew I was pretty sure he was going to propose to me in the hallway driving over there. I thought, okay, like I can't be super disappointed if that's not what's happening today. And also I'm thinking about it. Um, but even though I knew, and it turned out that that was the case, it's still there's still nothing that can really prepare you intellectually to experience that moment subjectively as a human being. You know, so I don't know if that's a helpful analogy, but it, this is a very, this is a difficult question, and especially when we get down to the nitty-gritty of specific moments in Jesus' life, how this, how this works and what does it look like within the person of Jesus when he prays, you know, let the cup pass and these kinds of things. Um, but, but good sources of meditation, hopefully. Yeah, and again, one
0: of those one of those jumping off points. I think that's a fantastic example. I think it's a very practical example, and, and this is again these these jumping off points that you provide for us to think about these deeper things and to dig into the uh, the tradition authors like uh, Aquinas who have who have unpacked kind of some of these things uh, again as best they can. Again, we're dealing with this topic which we can't really, as you say, wrap our heads around. We've we've never had two natures ourselves, so. You know, it's these topics that are are challenging to dig into, but again, a, a great jumping off point.
1: And also you show in the book that, in the you know, the Incarnation isn't, isn't just a conundrum about how God can become a human being, it's also what the point of all of that was and what actually is the net result for humanity, right, to be renewed by God who actually dwelt As one of us among us um, and why it was fitting for God to have done so, um, even though it it prompts a number of intellectual perplexities on our part as we come to terms with what God has done for us.
0: Yeah, I mean, that leads perfectly into my next question, which was Jesus's death and crucifixion. And it seems so intriguing to me, so unique in all of history, that the life of one man, essentially a time uh, recorded in the Gospels, which which encapsulates, say, three years in in total, um, or something like that, you know, has so fascinated and captivated the world. and. As believers, of course, it isn't surprising. This is God become flesh, after all. But, you know, the church has spent more than 2,000 years reflecting on these short years of Jesus' ministry and his death. And it still seems, even in this conversation, of course, that there's so much mystery here. Um, You do a fantastic job unpacking why Jesus died in your book but i'm always surprised to learn how diverse in in wider christianity the opinions and theological perspectives on this are you know some theologians frame this as a legal transaction a mere debt to pay while others express it as a covenant or this kind of familial act of love or this as you've just described this best fit way of jesus coming and showing who he is Um, I wonder how you would best explain from a Catholic perspective why Jesus had to die, why he was crucified.
1: So something I talk about in the book is hopefully make uh, clear that from the Catholic perspective, you know, it's not necessary for Jesus to die on the cross in like an absolute sense, right? God can do whatever God wants to do. God wants to wave his wand and make sin go away. God can do that. So really it's coming to terms with why God would come to earth and be crucified if he didn't even really have to. And really what we understand, as the creed says, right, Christ came for us and our salvation. Um, And so I hope, how to describe it in a way that's particularly Catholic. I mean, one thing I try to show in the book is that the images for salvation are in no way exhausted by any one way of looking at it. And this is true of the Bible too. I mean, we tend to think about words like, redemption, atonement, expiation, salvation, reconciliation, uh, you know, we tend to think of those as synonymous, but actually those words are drawing on many different images, right? Expiation, the idea of sort of cleansing or purgation, whereas the idea of atonement or reconciliation is really becoming one with God, having a mediator, right, mediate between two conflicting parties, whereas the idea of redemption comes from buying back a slave, so more of that debt imagery, right, because in the ancient world you would often be enslaved because you had so much debt that you couldn't pay it back. So then you would have to pay it back with your whole life as as an indentured slave. And so all of these images are really present in the New Testament. Um, and, and we actually kind of need to understand them all to even start getting a sense of why the cross is sort of the most fitting um, way for us to be redeemed. and And so I think both Catholics and Protestants. Um, maybe overemphasize a little bit this idea of debt exchange. and exchange and debt is a very important important image in the Bible, of course, for redemption, but if we only think about it as a legal transaction, like man owed a debt that they couldn't pay, only God could pay the debt, but only man owed, therefore, solution, God-man pays the debt, right? He pays the infinite debt, but pays it in, in the form of a man. Um if you think about it that way too strictly, right, you actually end up with a with not a very Catholic understanding of salvation and what I mean by that is as a Protestant I used to wonder, okay if there's a debt owed and Jesus pays the debt and there's nothing and that's it, why do I still die? because that seems that seems bad. I thought he paid the whole I thought that was paid off, you know um, <laughs> redeemed and why the cross is so fitting right what's redeemed is actually our own humanity in its entirety. Right? And what, what did God create human beings to do? God created us to be able to love him and to love each other. And so the cross really redeems our agency as well. And so the reason why God dies on a cross rather than waves a magic wand is because God wants to redeem us through our brokenness, not from our brokenness, right? God doesn't want to look at the history of the world and say, man, you guys really screwed that up. I'm just going to wave my wand, get rid of all that, died, paid the debt, sign still delivered. I'll just wait up in heaven until the end of time right? God enters into the stream of history. He recapitulates history, redeems all of that broken past, redeems even suffering itself. So that suffering becomes our gate to eternal life. But he doesn't just get rid of it as if human agency and human experience count for nothing.
0: Oh, that's such a fantastic way of putting it. I, 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 really appreciate that you, you know, you underscore that it can't be one single approach. It can't be just, just this one atonement, just as one debt-paying way of understanding salvation. And then you provide us with such a succinct way of understanding all of it. That's just a fantastic uh, expression of that. And really, that that paints a, comp- a, a picture of God, which is far more compelling than just a God who comes and and performs a legal transaction to get us out of jail, in a sense. This, the, the picture that you present, that this more fulsome picture that the church gives to us, is just such a, a, a more rich presentation of what our salvation means, right?
1: Yeah, and like, and that holistic understanding of salvation is directly related to then understanding the church because of what we think Christ did, both through his incarnation and his life, and then on the cross, is actually redeem human, human agency, redeem human history, and create as is sometimes called a new human solidarity. Right. So this idea of the new Adam. So under the old Adam, right, we're born as sinners and we're sort of constituted by the old Adam, but then the new Adam, Jesus Christ. Through our baptism, we become through a new lineage, right? A new family through Jesus Christ. Well, if we think that Jesus actually did that, well, then where is the new family? Where is the solidarity? Where is that new humanity? Did Jesus only do that in the abstract? And of course, as Catholics, we say, no, he didn't do it in the abstract. He actually did it for real. And that new humanity and that new solidarity is called the church.
0: <laughs> That's very well said. Okay, so one final thought, because as Catholics, of course, we believe that Jesus didn't just stay dead, but rose from the dead, and this is part of our salvation, part of the message we have to share as Catholic Christians. So I wonder, as a parting thought, what do we take away from this, that the God we believe in took on flesh, came to earth, died, but then rose up again from the dead?
1: Yeah, so this is you've hit on something that's perhaps a weakness of my book cuz I don't have a chapter on the resurrection. Maybe I should have done. But then i feel like, why God suffered? Why God died? Why God rose from the dead? Why he ascended into heaven? Why he seated at the reign of the father? No, I didn't I didn't get all the way there. And, and you you've touched on a good point because Catholics get criticized, of course, for having the crucifix, right? For having the corpus like we're morbid and then we just focus on re-sacrificing Christ every Sunday and we're not resurrection people or or whatever. But the thing but actually um, and I hope this comes through at the book and the book is Catholics really understand the cross as the sign of the victory of Christ. right? It isn't that on the cross, like Christ suffers a defeat, like one for the devil, zero for Christ, but then at the resurrection he wins you know that isn't what happens what what we believe is that on the cross Christ really did pay for our sins Christ really did reconcile God and man Christ really did recapit- recapitulate all of human history even unto death Christ really did restore humanity right and so what what the resurrection is r- the resurrection is is the glory of the cross, as Benedict XVI would say, right? The resurrection is is the manifestation of the victory that he won. So if you think about like a marathon runner, right? they 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 won the race, they've crossed the finish line, they might fall down because they're so tired and they're sweaty, right? And then they stand they stand on the podium, right, and receive their medal. They receive their laurels as the victor. And so the victory itself is won on the track, but manifested on the podium, so to speak. And so with the resurrection, right, Jesus wins that that battle on the cross, and if he really did destroy death, we really believe that he destroyed death on the cross, well then, what was left for him but to be raised? And so that's the glory of the victory won on the cross, is the resurrection, and in Christ, we see all the fruits, right? We see the renewed humanity, we see our hope, we know now that if we die, we'll rise again. And so, because of the resurrection, without the resurrection, right, Paul says our preaching is in vain. So the resurrection is essential, and why? Because without the resurrection... It would really be in question whether or not Christ actually did the things that he said he was coming to do. You know, if Christ said he was coming to save sinners, but did he really if he remained in the grave? But we know since he rose that... That all his promises were true and that he really achieved what he set out to do. And so, one analogy I, I like to, I've thought of about this is that, you know, the death of Jesus Christ is not like the death of Romeo for Juliet. You know, that's a tragedy. Romeo died for Juliet, but it didn't do Juliet any good. That's not the cross. The cross is not a tragedy. That's why Dante has a divine comedy, right? Because Jesus died for us, but it's not a tragedy. It's a comedy because he dies for us in a way that redeems us and therefore comes back to life.
0: <laughs> That's great. And I assume you're referring to the uh, Leonardo DiCaprio version of Romeo and Juliet.
1: <laughs> oh, I get I mean in all the versions it's a tragedy, right? In all the versions it's like yeah, and and like I I really hate as a Canadian I hate like miscommunication, you know? Like being being cordial, being congenial. This is like the most important thing to a Canadian. So Romeo and Juliet's very upsetting for me. <laughs>
0: Wonderful. Well, this has been a fantastic conversation. You know, I really can't recommend your your book enough. It's just a fantastic presentation of who God is. It's so succinct. It's so concise. But there's so much in there to, to deepen, uh, you know, to... to to deepen your understanding of God and then and and for me I can say this is certainly true to to push me to dig more into my understanding go go to these uh these deeper sources Augustine and Aquinas and to and to dig deeper into the tradition of the church and what the church says on God so Thank you. It's a fantastic book. Um, where else can people go maybe to to maybe do some further reading or find out more about what you're up to? Um, the book is available um, from the Gustin Institute, from Ignatius Press, from Amazon. But anywhere else you want to point people towards?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, you, you if you want to check out sort of just various popular things I'm up to, um, you can see the online journal of the Augustine Institute, which is at faithandculture.com. So sometimes I contribute my musings on various things, all things liturgical, literature, theology, that kind of stuff. Um, in terms of, of deeper reading uh, pertaining to the book... Um, one one text I would I would point to if you're especially interested in this question of d- deepening your understanding of salvation is a little academic article by Brian Daly called "He Himself Is Our Peace," and he really lays out the complexity of images for the um, for the crucifixion in the Fathers and in the Bible. It's something that I've drawn on uh, for class. Mm-hmm. I mentioned, yeah, Frank Sheets, Theology and Sanity is, in some ways, there's some longer chunks on some of the same mysteries that I talk about. But yeah, just keep an eye on Augustine Institute website and stuff that we're up to. And I'm sure that I'll be roped into doing more publications some point soon.
0: (laughs) Well, I certainly hope so. This is a fantastic book. Thank you so much for joining me on the show today. God bless you and your family, and God bless the fantastic work you are doing uh, down there in Colorado. Thank you so much for joining me.
1: Thanks for having me on. Have a good
0: day. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Elizabeth Klein. Hopefully you learned something new Least of all that Canadians are pretty awesome. (laughs) I think it was a fantastic interview and really, really, truly insightful. Hope you enjoyed it too. Visit thecordialcatholic.com for show notes in my blog. Show notes are also available in the podcatching app you use and include a link to buying Dr. Klein's fantastic new book. It is certainly worth the read. Definitely on my list of books to recommend. Check that out. God, what every Catholic should know from the Augustine Institute. I'm at Cordial Catholic on Twitter, The Cordial Catholic on Facebook, and emails can be sent to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. I'd love to know who you are, where you're listening from, and why in the world are you listening? (laughs) I thank you so much for this hour of your time. I can't believe you listened to the show. It's really humbling, guys. So email me, tell me who you are and where you're hearing me from and why. Patreon.com slash Cordial Catholic is where you can support this show financially. Even one or two dollars a month goes a long way into helping me to keep this thing going. If you can give five dollars or more a month, you're entered automatically into Draws for Free Books. All patrons get access to bonus content, early episodes, and a special behind-the-scenes podcast. Please subscribe to this podcast or follow it wherever you find it. Please pray for me. I'm praying for you and talk to you next week, guys. God bless. This show is brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordialcathy A special thanks to Ellie and Tom, Kelvin and Susan, Stephen, Suzanne and Victor, Phil, Noah, Nicole, Michelle, Jordan, John, James, Gina, and Aram for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible. You guys are fantastic. God bless and thanks for your support.